So, good evening to you all. Uh, I want to begin uh, um, by giving some more con- uh, additional instructions about what it's like to practice right now. Because I love this part of the retreat um, that's not just silent. And I love the silent retreat and it's, it's invaluable. Uh, but often we create, or I noticed how I used to create in my mind, like, oh, that was a real practice. And then interactive experience, that was not the real practice. And so I like to try and erase that line if you're drawing it at all, so that we begin to include this as much as part of practice as when you're silent or not looking at somebody or not hearing somebody. And um, and given it's our, you know, whatever, day and a half of the retreat, is that what it is? Two days? Have we been here? Good, two days. Um, um, I thought I would um, read a quote from one of my my teacher's teacher's teacher. So he's from a while ago. He's long gone. Um, but it's it's been alluded to a little on the retreat. And it has to do with the body. And, and the body as part of practice right now. And as was said in a certain way, I'll, I'll read you the quote from Ajahn Mun who said, in your investigation of the world, in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. In your investigation of the world, of reality, never let the mind desert the body. Examine its nature, see the the impermanence, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, lying down, when its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. And so for me, partly that means stay aware and awake to what's sitting in your seat what's right here, meaning right there. And you'll notice, for the most part, as long as I'm relatively coherent, you'll understand what I'm saying. You'll have the, because the body will take in the sounds, and the mind will make sense or not make sense of them, depending on how coherent I might be. And so you're including me, but you're also including yourself, the living knowing of what's hearing me, the living awareness of what's aware of me. And Gil was pointing to it a little bit last night in what we're aware of and the awareness itself, which is sitting right here. It's a metaphorical way to talk about it, saying, oh, it's sitting right here. But it's related to body, 
aliveness, consciousness, which is sitting right here. So last night, uh, Gil was talking about awareness and mindfulness, body fullness, heart fullness, the fullness of reality, the fullness of what knows reality, what's impacted by reality, what's touched or irritated or enjoys or calm or clear or unclear or confused at any time. And he gave a lovely teaching about recognizing, like right now, whatever's happening, recognizing it, and then opening to it or giving yourself fully to it, knowing it fully, what, whatever the it is, happy, sad, good, bad, liking, not liking, you know, illuminating, in darkening, whatever's here. Start to be, recognize it, and start to open to that experience, not just intellectually, not just mentally, not just physically, not just emotionally, but with the totality of what's sitting here. And then different, different, components of what's sitting here will be in the foreground. Sometimes the mind will be in the foreground. Sometimes the body experience will be in the foreground. Sometimes the heart experience will be in the foreground. Sometimes um, components that we don't have good words for might be in the foreground. And so we want to continue to practice while the talk is happening. And um, yeah, the other piece he said that I, he talked about a lot of different things, all good and helpful for us. Um, But he also talked about the knowing of awareness, how awareness knows. And I think that, I love that. I think that's wild, to be honest. That knowing happens, right? Isn't it happening for you now? Even if you try not to know, you're knowing something? Anybody not know anything? (laughs) I always love the people who raise their hand at that because how do they know that I said that? So the first um, um, factor or quality of awakening that we talked about had to do with awareness and mindfulness and knowing and the recognition of reality at whatever level reality is appearing, whatever domain of reality we might talk about. And uh, the um, knowing brings forth other components of reality. And part of what can come is some interest in what is here. Whatever we're knowing, we get interested in it. Or we get 
curious about it or we wonder about it. Like, like here's here. You ever wonder what the hell you are? And I mean that seriously. You ever wonder what you are? Or what is it to be human? Or what is it to be whatever you consider yourself to be, a man or a woman or some other identification that might fit you? Or, you know, rich or poor or whatever. Do you ever start to wonder, oh, what is, what is this that we take ourselves to be? What is, what is it a little more than the uh, concept and the general idea of it? That's all good, but sometimes there's some interest or wondering or curiosity that comes with reality. And it can also come not with the identification components that I'm pointing at, but even... and and. You ever wonder what what is a breath? What is breathing? And we're not looking for a conceptual answer, but the experience itself. Like, okay, what is it actually? What is life? Right? Anybody here not alive? Right? We're we're all alive. What's that? And again, there's the conceptual sweet something one can think about. But then there's also uh, some other level of that kind of question that we ask that to me seems somewhat um, innate for us as human beings. Like we ask, what, what's really important about being alive, about being here, about whatever we do with our life. That's something we all generally care about. <clears throat> and so a little bit I'm pointing you at the second fa- factor in a broad sense, in a broad understanding of the factor of what's called um, in Pali, Dharma Vichaya, or investigation. Investigation of Dharma. And it's the second factor of awakening. And meaning it's a quality of heart and mind that comes forward as we're pursuing what's important to us. And by that I mean, here's a question for you, and you don't have to answer aloud, but for yourself, why are you here on this retreat? For me, that's a really good question for us to ask ourselves. What do you want from this practice? Or what are you seeking? Or another way, I'm I'm asking it different ways, and I hope that that helps rouse what's already brought you here, like what's important to you to discover in this form of practice we call you know, Vipassana, where you come and you sit and you look at this experience that's sitting in your seat and really get close to it or interested in it.
And I was looking, you know, I was researching a little how Dharma Vachaya is understood. It's also called investigation of Dharma or truth discerning wisdom. I like that. That's a beautiful factor of awakening, truth discerning wisdom. And, uh, the, uh, or discrimination of Dharma. Also, I found one translation that said self-correcting intelligence. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I could always use some of that. <laughs> you know. And then also somebody talked about it as the sword of discriminating wisdom. And I also like that. And I'm giving you the different names because some of the names are very, you know, like investigation of Dharma. But some of the names, like truth, discerning wisdom, the first one, investigating Dharma, that, you know, that's okay, that sounds good. But truth, discerning wisdom, or sort of discriminating wisdom, starts to have a poetic to it that is, I find, very also uh, descriptive in a less conceptual way, in a less thinking way. It provides a feeling of the tone of heart and mind that's talked about when we talk about the investigative factor of awakening. <clears throat> and the second factor was said to be, for the Buddha, it was said to be um, the nourishment that most nourished the Buddha. The nourishment that most nourished the Buddha was his discriminating wisdom or his uh, investigation of truth. And those, to my, I, that, I like that, meaning that wakes up something in me, in my heart, that I like as part of practice. It brings, it, it's not just, it's not dry as far as I'm concerned. And it grows out of mind, fullness, body, fullness, heart, fullness. Or the kind of presence that's been pointed to here a little bit that is developed in this kind of practice that is already here and is starting to be realized by us. And that's an important discrimination I like to make. We're not creating something. We're not fixing something. We're starting to nourish or support or realize what's here or what's part of what's here. And maybe we're not aware of it yet. And so we're learning about the nature of what is sitting in our seat. And that's, again, I like that. That's an adventure, and it doesn't mean it's always a fun adventure. Have you noticed so far? It's like not always like bells and whistles to be on retreat. No, it's more like reality. It has its dukkha. It has its suffering. Anybody not know what dukkha is? If you don't know, raise your hand. I just like to see great. Because it's a word we use, and if you're new or not so familiar, the word dukkha is what's translated as suffering. 
And um, suffering's okay, but dukkha's much broader. And I love that about dukkha. It really describes something about being a human being that's not a mistake or wrong, but part of inherent of life on this realm, which is there's difficulty or there's there's disharmony with reality or there's um, uncomfortableness or there's, you know, obvious dukkha, suffering, like, you know, sickness, old age, death, war, racism, hatred, whatever it might be. These are obvious dukkhas. And then there's also just the ordinary dukkha. It's called dukkha dukkha. I love that. It's dukkha dukkha. That is part of being a human being. So you're sitting here, it's a Dharma talk, you're really excited, and all of a sudden, oh, your bladder, you have to go to the bathroom. That's also dukkha. It's just normal dukkha, and there's part of human life. And starting to open to dukkha is one of the key teachings of the Buddha. And, and to see the dukkha that's here, and because dukkha is key or related to um, seeing what causes dukkha, how we're relating to the reality of whatever the reality is. We like it, we don't like it, we're afraid, we're not afraid, whatever it might be. We, we think it's great, we think it's horrible. Um, and, and so seeing the dukkha and how it arises or how we've been shaped or how, we're, um, how we misunderstand reality and so then we relate to it in a way that causes suffering for ourselves or others. And then that, all of that is a continuum that leads to the end of dukkha in the Buddhist teaching. And I'm describing the first three of the Four Noble Truths, that there is dukkha, there is suffering, there's causes to suffering, conditions that create suffering. And then there's the possibility of the end of suffering or freedom from suffering. And then the fourth noble tr truth is the practice that we're doing and teachings that lead to dukkha, cause of dukkha, end of dukkha. So, <clears throat> so this factor that I'm pointing at or beginning to point at of investigation is one of the dynamic factors of the seven factors of enlightenment, of awakening. And so there's investigation, energy, and joy, and those are part of the arousing factors. And then the, the stabilizing factors are tranquility, uh, uh, samadhi or concentration, and equanimity. And all of these factors are inherent and unrealized. And when they all start to wake up, as Gil described them, like even waking up from a nap and starting to see what's here, we can start to see the potential of heart and mind to wake up. And then what that potential can do as it starts to live 
and live in a real way and with the reality we all know. Not finding a perfect reality, okay? That's the one thing you, of everything I've said so far, that's the one thing you can trust. We're not going to find a perfect reality. But we may be able to find the perfection of what's here in the imperfect. It's a kind of slightly Zen way to say that. And so, when I ask you, why are you here? Or what do you seek? Or what do you want? I hope it rouses something in you something you care about or something that's important to you or something that's meaningful to you. Whatever it is, and it's, it's not a right answer to this, please let's be clear about that. No, there's the various answers that are sitting here that are seeking freedom or happiness or love or liberation or whatever it might be or peace or calm or clarity, the various ways that um, realization starts to display itself as a living reality, not as some idealistic uh, projection or belief. <clears throat> and so this question, why are we here, or what are we seeking, or what's the goal? It um, implies um, that there's something we sense that's possible about the potential of what it is to be a human being. And that's, that's a good, that, that was good, Eugene, in my mind, <laughs> you, you, really. And I mean that sincerely, because when I think about the Buddha or contemplate the Buddha and his uh, awakening. And I love the word awakening and enlightenment and all that is great, all great. But really what I think is, oh, he realized, he realized what it is to be a mature human being. Like a different level of maturity than we're used to. A maturity that was not based on his sense of self or his job or his, you know, something, but was more innate to reality itself. The potential of what's sitting here that he pointed at then for all of us and is really part of the reason we're all sitting here because of his pointing and the livingness of what he pointed at as as the Buddha, as a mature human being saying, oh yeah, this is possible, and this is possible for each of us. <clears throat> so, the wonder and of, of the, the intuition that more is possible, and the investigation then of practice, starts to show us what, what, what's here. Meaning, wonder brings investigation, brings learning, understanding, or more Buddhist realization. <clears throat> the greater ability to see what's really here. <clears throat> <clears throat> 
or here and now, as is often said. <clears throat> and the relationship, part of the what comes and what we're pointing at and you're experiencing is the relationship between um, knowing and not knowing. Because we're everybody, right, we're all paying attention and seeing what's known as we're aware, right? What's here? Breath, body, sensations, hot, cold. Even see right now what, what's here. See, right, what's, what's here. And what's kind of beautiful is that knowing doesn't limit knowing. <laughs> knowing meaning there's more to discover about reality. And it may be more grand or more complex or more phenomenal or more something than, than we know. Or it may be more quiet or more simple or more ordinary or less complex than we could even imagine as we get closer to what we don't know. Meaning that the don't know could, could show anything because we don't know. But the don't know brings a kind of openness to our practice where the practice is not prior defined about what's going to happen. And I've practiced long enough and I've seen, I don't know what's going to happen. I can be quite honest with you, I don't know what's going to happen in your practice. You know, I know some of the terrain and we've been around, we've seen a lot of things. But we've also seen there's, there's more to learn. There's more to discover about reality. And even the Buddha, it's great when you read the Buddha, like, right, the Buddha's totally enlightened. In some of the things I've read, it said, oh, one person every 5,000 years is enlightened like the Buddha, right? So it's a, it's a serious enlightenment, right? A serious awakening. Um, but you still see, oh, he's still learning. He's still learning as he practices and works with reality. And what's reality? The earth, life, food, people, relationships, emotions that people have, everything. He's still learning how to, how to be a great teacher. And so his knowing doesn't obscure the unknown. The knowing is there, and then the fresh, the new, the immediate, the live, here and now, is also here revealing more, revealing itself. Again, whether it's in complexity sometimes, or in such simplicity, that it's uncomfortable for us at times how simple reality can be. <clears throat> and I like to talk about knowing and not knowing really a lot and because it seems so both important parts of practice and reality 
And there's a book that I love uh, by Krishnamurti. I think that's right. It's called Freedom from the Known. Freedom from the Known. Such a beautiful title. And as I say often, the title was so good I didn't read the book. Because <laughs> he nailed it in the title. <laughs> Why did I want to hear all his other ideas, which I'm sure are good and could be helpful, but, but if I get it, I'm happy, you know. And so, freedom from the known. And, and what he's pointing at is some of the limits that we create by knowing. Because then we pretend we, we know. And here, I'll give you another personal example. Um, it's, not, it's not actually so funny, but it's, not, um, uh, it's just part of a reality. I had a, a serious accident a couple years ago serious bicycle accident. I loved to bike and, and I'd been biking many years and I was actually on the, paradoxically, on the Buddhist bike pilgrimage and I had a serious accident. Hospital, serious, bad. I mean, really, not anything I recommend as part of practice, but um, but it, it happened and, uh, you know, and, you know, it was unclear what would happen for a while, but I, I lived, and I ended up spending five weeks at the in the hospital, and and then going home, and you know, and and I was not only broken up physically, which I was, but I had a head injury, and so I lost the familiar sense of self very much, and um, and it was um, fascinating to see. <clears throat> be, little bit because of the accident, how much I thought I knew that was just <laughs> like not true about reality. Because reality was so much, again, you're going to hear Eugene words, not necessarily Buddhist words. Reality was so much wilder than I knew. There was so much more to reality than I thought. And it was wild to see that and to and it to be okay to see how wild reality was, how broad, how consciousness, I mean, what is consciousness? What an amazing thing that we're alive as human beings with this consciousness and it's sitting here, right? So... I'm, I'm trying to see where I am at the talk because I think oh, I need to go a little quicker with this talk. Let's see. So just the last thing to say about knowing and not knowing that I, I want to say because I like it so much. It's from Suzuki Roshi. And it was about a student who went to uh, Suzuki Roshi and said, you talked about the first principle again, but I still don't know what it is. I said to Suzuki, and Suzuki said, I don't know, he said, is the first principle. <laughs> and that's a beautiful understanding of part of what we're learning here is seeing what we know, recognizing the, in a very simple, easy way, you don't have to look hard, 
And then, okay, seeing, oh, there's more. And when I say don't know, we start to see, oh, there's more to reality. There's more to what's sitting here than we knew. Let's see where I am. So the the investigative um, factor brings a, a questioning, interest, curiosity, wondering, in investigation of what's sitting here, so that we we the knowing lives with the not knowing together. And so you don't want to pretend you don't know or anything, but you don't want to let the knowing stop you from being curious or getting closer or feeling into or sensing or looking or observing or experiencing what's here. And beginning to appreciate that reality has more to teach us, more to show us more to offer to us. And the phrase, and this is totally a Eugene phrase that I like, is that reality is revelatory. Reality is revelatory. That the Buddha didn't wake up in some other world or some other domain. He woke up in this human experience and it revealed something that people said couldn't even be revealed, right? I, I always like the part of the story where the Buddha does all this great practice with teachers and he keeps saying, oh no, I keep feeling like there's some more, there's more freedom I'm seeking. And they say, no, 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 that's not possible. But he has an innate feeling, idea, belief, curiosity, interest, that there's more freedom. And I believe, and maybe I'm wrong, that we all feel that in some way, that we all already know that in some intuitive way, whether we use the language the Buddha used or that I used, there's something that brings us here. We know, oh, there's more potential for what it is to be a human being. And we want that. We want to make that real or realize that. And so, so we're not, we're questioning reality. We're looking at it, we're getting closer to it, we're examining it, we're exploring it, we're investigating it. Not just conceptually, but experientially, intuitively. And, and, you know, for example, um, one of the things that is often talked about at this phase of retreat are the five, what's called the five hindrances. And they're very normal energies that arise naturally and often are recognized at this phase of the retreat. And you may have noticed them. You may have noticed desire for something to happen that's not happening, right? Or you may notice aversion, right? The aversion to what is happening. Like you don't like it, you don't want it, we don't get, can we get rid of it? Uh, When am I gonna get over this, right? Desire, aversion. Or maybe, anybody notice that they've been sleepy? Like sleepiness, right? Oh, just a few people have noticed that. 
okay? Or restlessness, a kind of agitation. I'm tired of sitting, I can't sit anymore. It's like, you know, <laughs> I have a funny phrase in my mind. It's a, it's a Jewish phrase that never comes. I mean, I'm Jewish, but I'm, I don't have a lot of that kind of mind usually. But the mind, the phrase is spilchus in tuchus, <laughs> which is a kind of version of ants in your pants. How about that? <laughs> and, um, and, and that's a kind of agitation or restlessness that can come when we're doing this kind of practice. Or, and here's a very common, what's called hindrance, which is doubt. So I'm giving you the five hindrances so you can be aware or recognize them when they're here. Desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. And I don't like the term five hindrances. It makes them sound bad. They're not fun, and they're, and, but they are doorways that we go through, and they're part of what happens for human beings. And it's part of what we learn to work with skillfully that starts to lead to more reality, to more of what's sitting here, not just the surface part, which the hindrances tend to represent but the depth of what's sitting here or the other more dimensions of what's sitting here or the maturity, that's another way to say it, of what's sitting here. <clears throat> so, um, so investigation, investigation, one of my, somebody I spent a lot of time studying with was Tanisaro Bhikkhu. And he writes about investigation. He says the word investigation, in meditation, investigation is not carried out by means of thinking process. It's not a thinking process. Now, here I'm going to clarify something that I think is helpful. There are reflective meditations that use the thinking process to investigate reality. And Ajahn Chah used it a lot. But it's not what we're using in this kind of retreat, although at times the thinking will just happen on its own or the investigation will happen on its own very quickly without you doing it. You'll just go, oh, it's this, it's that. And there'll be an understanding and it'll have its cognitive component, which we can call thinking. But what he's pointing at is something more basic that happens in the meditative process, in the process of getting here, landing here, being here, letting the fullness of body, heart, and mind live here in a very full and awake way. He says, investigation is not carried out by means of thinking the thinking process. It is intuitive, a sort of discerning insight that distinguishes the characteristics of phenomena. And, and so he said, um, vichara is the word usually translated as investigation. It, it is also a synonym for wisdom or insight. 
Thus, in Vipassana practice, there's no such thing as a proper investigation which uncovers nothing. When vichara is present, investigation and insight coincide. They are the same thing. And so that's part of what happens. It's not something we do. It's something that's innate and starts to wake up first with the fullness of body, heart, and mind, and then the interest, curiosity, wonder, paying attention, getting closer, closer to our experience of body, heart, and mind. And so there's another component that I like to point to. I like to point to the knowing and not knowing that becomes part of the investigative process. Um, uh, And then the experience of awareness and how we know things, right? Which Gil talked about last night and we will all talk about. and uh, he was talking about, oh, maybe it was this morning, about sometimes you can have a bird's eye view, right? And you see everything that's there. And other times there's no separation. The awareness is, is here. And the knowing is in the direct experience. It's not far away. Like even now, if you feel your body, if you feel your body right now, The knowing is right in the feeling. Is it separate from the feeling? Is it somewhere else? Or is it... There's... In in my experience, oh, the knowing is in the experience itself. And those are both valuable ways to be aware. But I like to talk about the, um, the closeness that starts to come with practice, we start to get more intimate with our experience, with body. Start to get more, less distant from what's sitting here. Less distant from the physicalness or somaticness of what's here. Less distant from the emotionalness or heartfelt, the affective experience of what's here. Less distant from the cognitive or mental experience of what's here. And, and the knowing starts to be known as we sense or feel or experience or whatever word works for you as you get more intimate with experience. And one of the, I like the word intimate, I was taught many, many years ago by a uh, a teacher who was writing about this, he said, intus, intus was the Latin, and I may say that wrong, but intus, which is the basis of the word intimacy, means of the hidden. And I I love that. So intimacy, which we know means being closer, also points at something unknown that's there. It's about getting closer to the unknown. There's something hidden and getting intimate starts to reveal it and we see what happens. And the other reason I like this word, intimate, 
is because it's often associated with love, right? Our intimate ones, or we have an intimate relationship, right? Anybody ever hear that or have that experience? Oh, like all of a sudden we get really intimate with somebody. Partly it means, or it's meant at times, we take off our clothes with them means, oh, we're being intimate. That's one of the ways it's understood conventionally. And what I like about it is it points to um, that when we love something, we want to know it more. And that's why I wanted to point you a little bit, ask you a little bit, oh, what do you care about? Why are you here? Because what you hear, what, why you're here, you care about what, why you're here, whether it's love or kindness or compassion or, or peace or freedom or openness or some word that I'm not using. And so loving that, may imply, oh, you want to get closer to it. And we're offering a practice that offers the potential to get closer to the reality we seek. Just like as a lover, we want to know all about the people we love, especially when you first meet them. After a while, you know, it gets a little... We lose some of that, but but also that can wake up any time. And we realize, even when we've been with somebody 20 years, we see, oh, we don't really totally, we think we know them, and then we see, oh, we don't know them. And it's like, wow, who is this person? And how did they manage to stay with me for 20 years? (laughs) Of course, becomes one of the questions. They must be amazing. Uh, it's funny, I was, I was looking for material, looking at things that interest me, and I did find a, a whole thing from Zen Master Dogen about intimacy, and he talks about it a lot, and I love Dogen very much. But it, it, I couldn't really, I didn't have the, the wherewithal to really sit and really um, uh, take in or metabolize what he was saying. But, but I loved the book I was looking at, which was about Dogen. It said, uh, Dogen Zenji or whatever his name, they said, Dogen, mystical realist. Mystical realist. So, so I'm hoping to give a mystical realist talk here tonight. And, and really what I mean is I'm pointing at something poetic about reality that Dogen understood mystical realism, knowing and then the unknown and the beauty of what's here that begins to know. And as I've been saying and I hope is conveyed in some way that's skillful or or interesting or gets you curious is what does it mean to let awareness infuse your experience or saturate your experience even of the five hindrances? Like what, what happens if you get really curious about aversion 
instead of just believing the version. And you don't have to disbelieve it, but don't let your belief stop you from getting closer to the livingness of what we call aversion, the life that's here, because there may be more for us to discover. Or or the the you know, the restlessness, right? Instead of just feeling like I've got to get rid of this, I'm going to go walk for the next, you know, 50 minutes as fast as I can, which you can do if you need to. But also say, okay, I'm going to sit with the restlessness until I explode. Let's see what the hell is this restlessness. I'm interested. And then to see what happens as we start to get closer to experience. And we start to see there's more that we're discovering besides, in addition to the simplicity of the direct experience, which is the Dharma begins to reveal itself. You don't have to figure it out. The Dharma reveals itself. Why? Because what's sitting here is the Dharma. And one of the difficulties that sometimes we all have, I sure have, is that we we want the Dharma, but we want, I want it. I want the Dharma, I want freedom, but I want freedom. I don't want to, I don't want to change, or I don't want to be, better way to say it, I don't want to be changed. I just want the, give me the goodies, and then I'll be happy. And so the usual or habitual or familiar sense of self is something that's quite normal and that we all are living with. And again, we don't want to let what we know, like Eugene, we don't want to let the Eugene-ness of what's here obscure what's unknown. eugene is great, really. I love it. You know, it's this life, it's been a wild Eugene life. But that's not necessarily all that's here, is the Eugene-ness of what's here, the sense of self that's what's here. So one of my teachers, in talking about awareness, he said, he said, awareness occupies a very special place. In a sense, inner development as a whole, the work on our personality and true nature can be seen as the freeing and the expansion of awareness. The reason behind this is that the most basic function of the personality, of the sense of self, is the reduction of awareness. In fact, the deepest aspect of the personality is a restriction of awareness. He said it, I guess, a couple times. The ego identity, which is normally called the self, exists on the, on, its, on the deepest level as a contraction of awareness, a restriction of consciousness. And so we don't want to just... Uh, we want to be open to seeing, oh, what's not... What else is here besides the usual identification we have with Eugene or Mary or Joan or Robert or Denise or whatever your name might be? And it doesn't mean you don't have to get rid of the self, right? Here's the good news. You can keep it as long as you want. Even, (laughs) I mean, really, you don't... 
it's it's just the it's just the self. <laughs> not not so bad. But it may be interesting if we start to discover what's not self. Right? Which is also here. <clears throat> and so the second factor of awakening, Dharma Vachaya, keen investigation of the Dharma asks us not to simply accept the teachings at face value, but to investigate for ourselves things as they are. Investigate each one of us to investigate things as they are in all its simplicity, in all the, really, if it's quiet, great. You don't, and remember the investigation when we say it's, it's, uh, 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 the part of the active factors of it. It doesn't mean it's a big doing. It's a quality of heart and mind that is living and interested and knowing what's here. And letting that wonder and curiosity and letting that simply be here, breathing with your body right now. And again, you don't have to manufacture it. I'm just pointing at something that's innate and it will come forward as we practice. So the, <clears throat> so I'll, I want to finish this, um, right? But we want to investigate for ourselves things as they really are in a deeper perspective. We see that investigation, we three, see through investigation, that our world is constantly changing, right? Like, and we know this, right? Everybody know that everything's changing. Anybody not know that, right? So that's, a, that's one level of knowing that I'm giving right now, like a conceptual level, like everything's impermanent, right? So everything is changing. But then to start to experience that experientially, to start to know that experientially, moment by moment here, that may be another kind of knowing, another level of experience of what is impermanent. And then to feel it, that what's living here is not the same moment by moment by moment. That's, that's quite an interesting understanding of impermanence that's often disturbing to our usual sense of self. <clears throat> we also understand through right mindfulness investigation that everything in our universe is dependently arisen, subject to causes, conditions, and effects. And through investigation, we see deeply the nature of phenomena and experience through superficial levels to deeper cause and effect and the appearance and disappearance of all things reality starts to reveal itself. Reality becomes revelatory. And so in this way, this factor that we're pointing at tonight, and we're going to point at all the factors of awakening, this factor in Dharma Vichaya is called the wisdom factor. And Joseph Joseph Goldstein talks about it. He says, it's the factor that cuts through ignorance and delusion and liberates the heart and mind. And it's beautiful 
that that potential is here for us. The potential to discover reality that's sitting here. That we don't know all of what that is. And I don't know all of what that is. I'm still learning and happy to be learning. And it still has a wow to it. It doesn't mean every second I'm learning or seeing more, more, more. But I trust this practice implicitly. And really what that means to me means, oh, I trust life. That if, if, we, if I, we can show up, it will keep revealing more of what's here. And that, who knows what that all consists of. <clears throat> so, last, maybe, maybe a last quote. This is from Stephen Batchelor. He said, to meditate is not to empty the mind and gape at things in a trance-like stupor. Okay, that's clear. Nothing significant will be revealed by just staring blankly at an object long and hard enough. To meditate is to probe with intense sensitivity. To probe with intense sensitivity each glimmer of color, each cadence of sound, each touch of another's hand, each fumbling word that tries to utter what cannot be said. <clears throat> Such a, again, if in my Eugene words, it's just a wild deal that we're here and we have this opportunity to investigate the Dharma, the truth, reality, and that what's being pointed at by the Buddha, sometimes you see more pointing and sometimes is what, what he's pointing at is you or me or us. What's being pointed at is what's here that's taken birth in this form, in this shape, in this time. And so working with the ordinary, the simple, the difficult, the hindrances, all great. Those are not separate from the deepest potential. Those are part of what we work with, what we begin to learn about, what we discover in this form, the skillful means to get closer to, more intimate to, and let them reveal more of what's here as we get awake. So I'd like to end with a poem. But let's sit for a moment and then I'll read a little poem. And you can sit relaxed or you can sit up straight, whatever is appropriate for you. Whatever feels right. Because you want to you want to practice whether you're sitting as tall as me, <laughs> or as short as me, or, or in a relaxed way right at the moment. Like, what's here now?
and what's aware of what's here now. I could say that two different ways. Who's aware of what's here now? But it's a better, I feel like it helps to say, oh, what is aware of what's here now? And what's it like to be aware of what's aware? So the poetic is from Izumi Shikibu, Japanese woman practitioner. She describes this awareness, awakening. She said, watching the moon at dawn, watching the moon at dawn, solitary mid-sky, Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. you all for your kind attention. We'll have a period of walking practice now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.